We spent the last few weeks um, looking at stories of change, apart from last week where we took, um, just had a week off, what it looks like and what it means to, to become a Christian, to be changed, to become a, a follower of Jesus, to be born again, to move from death to life, to going from what we were to now who we are. We looked at the stories in the book of Acts, individuals who heard about Jesus, heard who he was and what he'd done and were brought to a point of, of responding. Think of the, the Philippian jailer who witnesses the, the earthquake. We did that a couple of weeks ago. Fenton talked to us from that passage. What must I do to be saved? And we see that immediate change in him where he gathers his family around, they listen and then they respond. They believe they are baptised. They, along with Lydia in this place called Philippi, they begin a church, a gathering of people who meet to worship Jesus and to live for him. We saw Jews and Gentiles, Saul, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. People affected and changed completely by the, the message of Jesus. So what next? What are we going to do next? Well, Joan's already given us a, a, a little taster. Actually, I did think whilst Joan was up here, I shouldn't bother. We should just read that again. That would probably be good. We, we read that five times. We're going to look at what happens after, after that change. What are we being changed to? Because it's fairly evident often what we're being changed from. But, but what are we being changed to? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at that under three headings. We're going to look at the attitude of a disciple, the actions of a disciple, and then the expectations of a disciple. So looking at three just different approaches, different points of what it means for a person, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, to follow Jesus. But why does it matter? Why does it matter to us what it looks like to follow Jesus? Well, simply here, if you are already a follower of Jesus, then this is part of God's plan for us. To learn, to grow, to continue to change. It is self-evident in each of us that the work that God is doing is not yet finished. Okay? I can catch any of you in the eye at this point and just say that's true. None of you are yet perfect. I am not yet perfect, but it is God's pleasure in us, our joy in him, to go his way and not ours. To listen to what he says that we should be, and to continue to engage ourselves in the process of, of change. So if you're a Christian, that's why you should listen for the next few minutes. And if you're not a Christian... Here's what I want to say to you. If you're going to turn to Jesus, if you're going to go all in on this, well, you better know what you're getting yourself in for. We believe that the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done is, is that good news for, for everyone who will believe. We believe that that change that God brings about in a person is good, good for them, good for our world. And so you get the opportunity this afternoon to, to look in. Is this the sort of person that, 
that I want to be? Is God really going to change me for the better? Well, if you go all in with Jesus, this is what God's going to do in you. He's going to give you this attitude. This attitude of humility. That's ultimately the, the, the headline for what we're doing today. Humility, the attitude of a disciple. So let's get into that story that Rachel's just read to us. Luke chapter 18. This is a parable. Okay, so look at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. A parable is a, a story. It is a, a made-up story that has a meaning. And specifically, we're told that Jesus tells these parables, these stories, so that it marks out those who can and can't, will and won't, respond to him. So not everybody understands these parables. We get the, the hindsight view. We get the, the meaning given to us. This time, we're told why Jesus tells this one. But at the time, Jesus tells this parable so that those who will trust in him, they'll get it. But it won't really be of any help. In fact, it won't be of any help at all to those who, who reject Jesus. And so he tells this parable about two men. There's a hero and a villain. It's Superman Lex Luthor. Okay, it's not quite that extreme. A Pharisee and a tax collector. For the Pharisee, we want to think of somebody who is defined by their goodness. Somebody who is generous, a, a doer of good deeds. And seemingly somebody who is blessed because of that. You know those people you look on and go, oh, they're a good person. And somewhere, something in the universe seems to be working out because they're good, good is happening to them. That's the sort of man that we're supposed to picture. A good man. For the tax collector, we're supposed to think the opposite. My wife told me off the other week for, for doing this and pointing out people on the stage that aren't there. But, okay, here's my Pharisee. Here's my tax collector, and I'll apologize later to Lib. The tax collector is the opposite of the Pharisee. Okay, he has got a job that means that everybody was looking down upon him. And it's not just the job. It's about identity. This people group, the, the Jewish people, were a nation whose identity was all taken up with their history. That they were God's chosen people. They were the people that God had brought out of Egypt, that had given a promised land to. And the Pharisee was somebody who was saying, even at this time, I'm all in with God. And it's evident to everybody. The tax collector, on the other hand, was somebody whose very job marked him out as somebody who, who wasn't on board with who we are. Because the nation of Israel had been taken over as part of the Roman Empire. They were no longer in charge of themselves. The Romans were their overlords and a tax collector is somebody who'd gone to work for the Romans. So put aside any thoughts you've got about tax collectors, good or bad, probably bad. This man was a sellout. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't really one of us. He was an outsider even as he's on the inside so this is a comparison of jobs yes but a comparison of 
of national identity, one who represents us and one who has betrayed us. One who is for God and one who has given up on God out of his own defeatist selfishness. And if Jesus was to take a straw poll as he's telling this story, and if he's to ask the crowd, okay, guys, tell me now, which one of these two men, Pharisee, tax collector, which one is right before God? Which one has right standing? Which one is God pleased with? But if he had taken a poll, 100% of people would come back and said, a Pharisee. And that can be hard for us if we've been from a church background, if you're familiar with the Bible stories, we see the Pharisees as the bad guys. But people then wouldn't have. They were good guys. And every hand would have gone up. It's the same as I've asked you last season, at the start of the premiership season, who's going to win the league? Man City or Cardiff City? Okay? Engaging with the football fans. Okay? It's, it's not even close. Cardiff City just promoted, no money, Man City, most expensive squad, best players, just won the league. Everybody would say Man City. Or if I was to say to you at the start of, of a Strictly series, who's going who's gonna to win? Is it the girl who was a professional singer and dancer, who's now dancing? Or is it the fat, overweight MP? Who's going to win Strictly? It's not Anne Widdicombe. I try and gauge different audiences there, my illustrations. Everybody is all in on the Pharisee because he's a good man and, and he knows it. So let's look at the Pharisee. Listen what he does. These two men, they go up to the temple to, to pray. They come to approach God. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Two things for us to note that sum up his approach to God here in this prayer. First thing he says, this is what I'm not. I am not like other people. I'm better. Second thing, God, this is what I've done. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's about what I'm not and what I've done. The tax collector, on the other hand, let's, let's have a look at him. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. His prayer is this. God, I need you. God, I need you. It's interesting that Jesus marks out their, their standing positions. So we're told that the Pharisee is stood by himself. He walks into the temple and he wants to distance himself from, well, from those people. And to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit better than these people. I don't want to be... I'll just make sure he's stood by himself. And geographically, what he does, he isolates himself and says, even in his standing position, I'm better than anybody else who's in but notice the tax collector. The tax collector does that thing where he squeezes into the back of the temple. And he's not looking at anybody else. He just knows that I can't be anywhere near God. It's not as though God stood at the front of the room, but 
it's like that he's done that thing where he, he snuck into the back of the room and, and just shuffled onto the back seat. Doesn't want to be near anywhere, anybody else. He stood at a distance. These two men, so different. One so good, the other so broken and, well, in his words, sinful. The tax collector says, it's all about me. Even as he engages with God, it's all about me. But for the tax collector, sorry, the Pharisee, the tax collector just knows that he's got no leg to stand on before God. He is a sinner and in need of mercy. He cannot even look up. His head is bowed. He's broken. He's got no rights being there. But he is there. And he's entrusted himself to God's mercy. That is the posture of a Christian. Bowed down before God, seeking mercy. And maybe just like the crowd would have been in Jesus' day, that surprises us. Because we imagine a Christian to be much more like the Pharisee. Our culture puts out Christianity and says Christianity looks like this. It looks like Ned Flanders, a do-gooder. It looks like somebody who means well, who does good things, and to be honest, is a little bit up themselves. I think that's often what Christianity is, is purported to be. But Jesus shocks that crowd, and maybe he shocks us with those final words. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Jesus says, Cardiff won the league. Ed Balls won strictly. The tax collector, the sinner, the self-declared, broken, rebel against God's is the one who is right with God because he asks for mercy. He knows that he's got nothing to offer God. He can only receive from God. The tax collector, the notorious sinner, the man with no claim of goodness, no CV of good deeds, he goes home justified, justified, declared right with God. Because God loves the humble and opposes the proud. God gives grace and favour to the humble and opposes the proud. That is the posture. That's what this parable is about. And Jesus says this to people who are confident of their own righteousness. People who could walk into the temple and think, I deserve to be here. I'm okay. I want us to see that we need to be a people who are humbled before God. Actually, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen that in those stories of change. People that have been humbled. People who have been brought to their knees by God. 
and shown that only he, only Jesus can save them. But this is an ongoing posture. I think the cross shows us that. The cross shows us that we, need an, we have an ongoing need for the mercy of God. Our hearts show us that. Because when we are real with each other, and ourselves even, there is so much sin still stirring within us, so much that says, I want to take God's place. I want to do things my way. I don't trust that God's plan is the best plan for me. But the cross shows us the, the penalty for, those, for that sin. It shows us that God is so opposed to who we naturally are that the only penalty is death. But the cross also shows us that Jesus paid that death for us. We look at the cross and we don't see a balance sheet which says, Jesus is going to contribute 70%. And the other 30% is left down to you. This is not a mortgage where you need a deposit. If I can just get myself up to a 10% deposit, then, then Jesus will provide the rest and I'll pay it back over time. And the cross is, it's all Jesus. The only thing we contribute at the cross to our salvation is the very wrongdoing that causes Jesus to go to the cross. that sin has been paid for gloriously wonderfully by jesus that should humble us it should bring us to the point we are recipients of mercy but we have an ongoing need for god to continue to show us mercy because we have an ongoing problem and battle with sin and specifically with pride I want to add another voice into our conversation. Okay, I'm adding a, another point uh, to the, the service notes. I'm sorry. This is what happens when I prepare sermons. I add and change things. And so here's, here's point two, which fits in between the other two. Pride, a two-headed monster. So this other, conversa- this other voice that I want to add to our conversation this afternoon is the voice of a character called Screwtape. Uncle Screwtape, the fictional creation of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a, a conv- an atheist who became a Christian, an author, a professor at Oxford University. Wrote the Narnia series. Some of you may have seen the films or read the books. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. And Lewis wrote this to Christians. And what he was doing, he's trying to get into the head of of the enemy of Christians. The Bible is clear that there is an enemy of God who then becomes an enemy of God's people, Christians, who's actively trying to to turn us from God, to stop us trusting in him, to pull us down. And Lewis says, I want to try and understand the enemy. It's going to be instructive to understand how the enemy might attack us. And so this book is a series of letters written from Screwtape, the uncle, the uncle senior devil, to the junior devil, Wormwood. And Wormwood has what's called a patient. Okay, This is a Christian who he has been given charge of to seek to pull down and destroy. Here's how he writes 
screw tape to wormwood about humility. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of the attempt. And so on through as many stages as you please. You see what Lewis is doing through screw tape? He's analysing the Christian and pointing out that there's this battle going on between pride and humility. Humility is what God's creating in us, this need for him, this desire for mercy. But pride is a relic of the old self. It's what we're born with, this desire for me, for me to be honoured and worshipped and respected and seen. This desire for me to be at the heart of all things. I wonder what Screwtape would write to our junior devils. I wonder what he would expose in us about pride. I've had a go at guessing. Here's Screwtape writing to Wormwood for us. I take great delight, Wormwood, in your latest report. Your patient in Rotherham has slowly become proud of his identity as a Christian. His lack of prayer for his neighbours has led to a quiet relief that at least he is not like them. I must commend you on the introduction into his life of the idea of a hierarchy of sins. That this sin is much worse than that sin. And of course, the ones that he thinks are particularly bad are the ones that he doesn't struggle with. So much so that as he walks into the house of our enemy, into church, he's not looking for any help in his life, just a reaffirming that he belongs, that he's good enough, that he's not like those other people. I think that, okay, back to Ben speaking now. I think that idea of, of a pride that's so similar to the, to the tax collector, that looks around at other people and just thinks... I'm doing better than they are. At least I don't struggle in the way that they do. I think for some of us, that's where the danger with pride lies. That we think in some twisted, warped way, I'm better because of my own effort. At least I'm not like them. But I said that pride is a two-headed monster. Perhaps this is what Screwtape would write to, to us. You've successfully encouraged your patient in Rotherham to believe that she is humble because she is outwardly less impressive than other people. She sees what the enemy knows to be true, a poorness of spirit within herself. But instead of running to him with it, she instead pulls away. She looks instead at others in the church and wishes that she was more like them, more confident, less broken. And that seed that you planted, my dear Wormwood, if only I was more like Mrs. Smith. 
then God would love me. Oh, that was genius, Wormwood. For, of course, Mrs. Smith is exactly what we hate. She is a, a gifted person who serves, their, uh, serves him with, with no thought of herself. And we in no way want your patient to be like her. But we do want her to want to be like her. So that she can be admired and loved. That path will be sort of spiral the patient delightfully away from our enemy. You see, there's the obvious pride. A pride that wants to stand at the front and wants people to acknowledge and worship me. Wants people to know when I've done good. But there's also the inversion of pride. A pride that wants that, but despairs because I can't have it. That is not humility. That's just pride at the other end. I wonder which of those that we are struggling with, maybe both, So what do we do? We look to the cross. And we see the ugliness of both of those. That we would ever set ourselves in God's position to be worshipped. And we wouldn't use those terms. But we want to be honoured. We want people to thank us and, and praise us and say what a good job we're doing. And we despair if people don't. And we see ourselves as less than valuable, less than loved. Because we don't have that gifts or generosity or kindness that others do. And we look to the cross and see the ugliness and the cost of that pride. And then we see that Jesus paid the price for it. I could go on but I want to finish at some point this evening. Let's look at consequent humility towards others. So that's looking at the vertical. Our relationship with with God, that we need to be humble before God. But that humility, when we have a right relationship with God, when we understand the gospel, all that Christ has done for us, then that overflows into our relationships with others. Because it sets us in a position of Security. I am accepted by God, justified before God. And therefore, in my relationship with others, I don't need them to build up me. I don't need them to puff me up. I don't need to use them so that I'm better, I'm higher. Because God knows me and loves me and sees me. Because of that, then we are free to serve others. Because the good news of Jesus, the gospel, changes the rules of engagement for a person living in this world. It's no longer, it's me or you. And if I serve you, then then I could risk being, losing out. Because what if you don't, if you don't reciprocate? What if I'm kind to you, but then you're mean to me, I lose out. But if I'm loved eternally by the eternal God, now and forever, then I've got nothing to lose. It's no longer a zero-sum game. 
we are free then to serve others, to be humble in the place where God has put us. And humility is a beautiful thing. When you see humility in others. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a, a guy called David Powlinson, who's a, a Christian author, a Christian counsellor. He died. He's had, um, I think it was bowel cancer. He died after a, a struggle. There's been a series of, of blogs that people have written about his life, about the man. And it struck me that as I read these people reflecting on knowing him, and again and again, what people said about him was that he was humble. It's a guy who's respected by Christians all around the world. He would go and speak at conferences and people would, he would be the guy people would want to hear. But listen to these reflections about this man. I didn't hear a single word he said, but I could tell by his posture, the way he leaned in and listened, that he was valuing her as a person. My Yet he was attentive. Summarizes how much I need to learn about love without realizing I'd put her in a box called mental illness and dehumanized her. That single theme, rediscovering the person, sums up David's life. So a guy who's saying, I'm not good at loving other people. But I saw in this guy, his posture. Another guy said of him, several of us asked him questions about counseling. This is a, a Christian conference about pastoral ministry and about issues in our own lives. Except for our questions, David talked almost the entire time, several hours. It was one of the few times I can remember in life where someone dominated hours of conversation as an act of humility. C.S. Lewis talked about humility and defined it as somebody, a humble person. You would know a humble person because you would spend time talking with them and you would come away and then they would not have talked about themselves at all. They would have just talked about you, asked about you, cared about you, loved you. C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller define humility as this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not pretending that good is bad, or that there aren't gifts and talents. Humility is not lying to people about what you can or can't do. Humility is being so utterly unpreoccupied with yourself. And that's so alien to us, naturally. It's so alien to us to, to, to not be utterly preoccupied with me. Humility looks like somebody who just is so invested in somebody else. That's why I read those quotes about David Pallinson, because, because that was the consistent observation of this man, that he cared for others, that he had no thought to his own reputation or his own... It, it was about them, whoever it was that he met. Whether there was some lady with mental illness in his church or some random pastors that he'd never met, just wanted to serve them and love them. When you meet somebody like that, you want to spend more time. There is something attractive about humble people. And I think we want to be humble people. 
because of what God has done for us, we want to love others and we are freed up to love other people. So then finally, the question is, well, well, how? How do we humble ourselves? Again, listen to those words of Jesus. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, lift themselves up, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. How do we humble ourselves? In this book on humility, funnily enough, I see Jamie Mahaney at the back. He's got a list of 17 things. I decided I wasn't going to do all 17. I might send them out in the, in the week for us to reflect on. It's so helpful. But let me just pull out four very quickly. Four ways in which we can humble ourselves, grow in humility, cultivate humility in ourselves. First one is this, to build humility into our devotional life. A Christian is someone who has a relationship with God and engages in that relationship. Not just a one-off moment of, of change, but an ongoing relationship with the living God. And so Christians, day by day, come to God's word, open the Bible, allow God to speak into their lives, and they pray. My old boss in, in Bristol, Mark, would, he told me about how his prayer life had been transformed i think he'd read a particular book but this idea of needing to be humble before god needing to address his own heart at the start of every day and so he came to a point where he starts every day by pray, praying from psalm 20 uh, 73 says this whom have i in heaven but you and he speaks that truth to himself what have i got what have i got except god nothing left to myself left to my own devices i have nothing of lasting eternal value and so we want to build humility into our devotional life teaching ourselves to ask for mercy day by day secondly to be proactive in seeking out the other good in others and to praise god for it to take our eyes off ourselves and to look into the lives of other people and to see God's good hand. To see the gifts that God has given. God gifts all of his people so they might serve him and serve the church and we might be building one another up. When we see it in other people, we want to be actively saying, where can I see God's hand at work in, in you? And where can I, if appropriate, thank you for that, but more appropriately, where can I thank God for that? And say, God, you've given a good gift here. I'm so thankful for it. Third, be proactive in seeking correction from others. One of the ways that we kill pride is that we reveal pride. We reveal sin. Nobody wants other people to know their faults. But one of the marks of pride a mature Christian is that they allow other Christians to speak into their lives and to correct them. Nobody, no Christian, when they're most honest with themselves, says, I'm perfect, I've got it all sorted. But probably all Christians fight to maintain a perfect persona. 
We need to be proactive in seeking correction from others. Allowing maybe one or two people who are closest to you to to speak into your lives and to say, hey, this area, that needs work. What you said here, not helpful. Not honouring to God. And if we do that proactively, that then hopefully sort of gives us the opportunity to respond well when people correct instead of just going how dare you say that to me because that's that's my heart response i don't want anybody criticizing me i don't think anybody does but but i need people to to work on me so do you we all do but more than all that the way the biggest way we humble ourselves is that we look at jesus look again at the cross we look at what jesus has done for us jesus so jesus is and the cross the gospel that is the heart of where or produces humility in us but it's also our example jesus is our example of what it means to forget ourselves and serve other people here's your homework okay no we thought you're getting homework Sorry, Sam and Josh, I know you've just finished school, but you know, here's a bit of homework for you. Go home and read Philippians 2. Maybe you could do it in, a fa- in your family. Maybe with a partner or a friend. Read Philippians 2. Jesus is the example of humility for us. And the more that we look at Jesus, the more we recognise that we need Jesus, but also the more that we want to be like him. For he is what it means to be truly human in all of his goodness. So I'm going to read that section from Philippians 2 to us as we close. But I think it would be worthwhile you going away and doing it again. Let me read these words about Jesus. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father let's pray Father we confess that we are not a humble people certainly not perfectly we confess that we have so much self interest at play in our hearts we confess that we have not believed that your plan is the best for us. 
Father, show us Jesus. Bring to our minds and our hearts more clearly the cross, the cost of our sin. How little we have to be proud about. Show us again that your grace is given to us as a gift, not by works, so we cannot boast. Father, humble us and then make us humble. Make us a people who will humbly serve one another and those around us in our community. That we might show even a little of what Jesus is like. That we might witness to his glory. That the world might see in us this change and that we might be able to point the world to the one who has changed us. Father, we trust that our sin is forgiven because of Jesus. And we pray you would continue to work at change in us. For your glory we pray.